0: Conspiracy show with Richard Sarah.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. And hello to everyone tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. Those of you streaming us live on the youtube channel strange planet and those of you who've gathered in the live youtube chat however and wherever you're listening i bid thee the warmest of welcomes and i thank you for your fine company tony heller from realclimatescience.com is here he's challenging all of the major tenets of the climate alarmists wildfires sea levels melting ice global temperatures extreme weather again tony describes himself as a whistleblower independent thinker who's considered a heretic on both sides of the climate debate. He's enjoyed a broad career in science, education, environment, and engineering, and he utilizes the same skill set and technique to analyze climate science claims as he uses in science and engineering. Tony has a Bachelor of Science degree in geology and participated in geothermal oil shale therm- thermodynamics of methane hydrates and volcanic research At Los Alamos National Labs. He has a master's degree in electrical engineering and has served as a computer scientist, or sorry, a computer architect at Sandia Labs, part of the consortium team at Compaq, and the design manager for Hitachi's STSH5 microprocessor. He's a lifelong environmentalist who first testified before Congress in 1972 in support of wilderness. He fought for the Clean Air and Water Act. And he points out he does not receive any funding from anyone other than small donations to his blog, which uh, works out to about $5 an hour. He says he hates cars and would love to see 90, 90% of them off the road. You can read his blogs and watch his vlogs at climate science, sorry, realclimatescience.com. Realclimatescience.com. And his new video platform is found at newtube.app. newtube
2: dot app. The channel is called Tony Heller. Why don't you like cars, Tony? Well, I'm a cyclist and I've been hit by cars a few times. So, <laughs> And they make pollution. Um, I hate it when I'm riding my bike up in the mountains and there's, you know, having to breathe car exhaust. So I'm not a huge fan of cars. I mean, I like taking the car out on the highway when I've got to drive a long distance, but uh, around town, they're incredibly annoying. Obviously, you're
1: concerned about air pollution, the quality of air, as all good stewards of the Earth should be, but we often hear about carbon dioxide and that term conflated with air pollution. How do they get away with that?
2: Um, Because most people don't understand science very well. I mean, carbon dioxide is a colorless, odorless gas, and it's an essential component of life. If we didn't have carbon dioxide, we would have no life on Earth. And that the way that it's been demonized is just senseless. You know, we we know from geologic history that life grows much better at higher levels of carbon dioxide. And we know that it doesn't cause more extreme weather. We know that the planet survived fine and the environment survived fine with carbon dioxide levels 10 or 20 times higher than they are now.
1: Okay, so let's get back to the extreme weather, and I want to circle back to uh, the wildfires. Four million acres in California. Governor Newsom is blaming climate change, global warming. I realize that's an incredible oversimplification. I made the analogy of imagine turning the thermostat in your house up a degree or even five degrees or even ten degrees and expecting the house to burn down. It's probably not a very apt analogy, but the the idea that one degree change could cause – forest fires. Is that possible? Does that make any sense?
2: Well, what he's saying makes absolutely no sense at all. And Let me give you some statistics to show just how ridiculous what his claims are. So the largest forest fire in U.S. history occurred this week or last week in the year 1910. Three million acres burned up in six hours um, along the border of Idaho and Montana. In six hours. Wow. That's almost as much as is burned in all of California this year. Another thing is that Gavin Newsom himself has said that more than 90% of the fires in California were started by humans. So what does that have to do with climate change? That's just stupid
1: people, right? Right. And how much of it is, as President Trump has maintained and others, that this is poor forest management? In other words... There used to be a thing called, you know, they would have controlled fires. And then along came the the big Smokey the Bear public service announcements probably starting in the 1960s and uh, they stopped doing these a lot of these controlled fires. How much of it is poor forest management?
2: Almost all of it. I used to be a wilderness ranger for the US Forest Service and I go hiking pretty much every single day with the dogs up in Medicine Bow National Forest here in Wyoming where I live. And we have a huge fire burning here, you know, about 50 miles away right now. It's one of the largest in Wyoming history. And it's in the Medicine Bow National Forest where I go hiking. And I go up there and I take pictures all the time of this incredibly overgrown mass of a forest they've got up there. Like you said, Smokey the Bear came along in the 1950s. They stopped allowing fires to burn. And now you've got this massive amount of litter, kindling wood, on the floor of the forest. And it was inevitable You know, the the forests where I went hiking today, they're not burning, but when somebody lights a match in there, they will. You know, they're incredibly overgrown, and I post these pictures on my blog all the time and on Twitter of dead wood lying all over the place. All it's going to take is one person with a match to set the whole place up. And that same thing's going on in California, right? We haven't allowed fires to burn, so... When you do get the fires, they're going to be much larger than they were um, previously. And you know, I'm from Los Alamos, New Mexico, and no place has been hit harder with huge fires over the last 20 years than Los Alamos has. All of the forest west of the city burned up, and many of the houses in the city burned up, too, in forest fires in the year 2000 and the year 2011. But now you go back there. Now I go back there when I can. I can't go there now because the governor's had the state locked down for six months. But when I was back there last summer, all that burn area from the 2011 fire is now full of beautiful greenery and new aspen trees and new oak trees. And the forest is healthy again because that fire came through. It burned out all of this massive, overgrown, sickly forest. And now it's able to return the nutrients to the soil, and now we have a beautiful forest growing up there again. And where I I worked as a wilderness ranger in, in the mountains of New Mexico and north of Santa Fe, they had massive forest fires in the 1890s, which burned... All of the pretty much all of the western slope of the San Diego de Cristo Mountains, up and down from Santa Fe, up into Colorado, and now those are the most beautiful, tallest aspen groves in the world as a result of those 1890 fires. So humans have this idea that fires are a bad thing and they're caused by man's sins. You know, very primitive beliefs which go back thousands of years. We cause this. We're, we're being punished for driving cars or. Or, or for being greedy or whatever, but that's not what's going on at all. It's just the forest needs fire. We haven't allowed the fire to burn for decades and decades. So when we do get fires now, they're really big. And then they're a huge problem now because we've allowed people to build their homes up in the forests, And then so they, people build their homes in the forest. They build their home right up next to a bunch of trees. Then the forest catches on fire, and the tree burns up, and their house burns up, and and they're surprised that this happens. But you know, you get forest fires in the forest; it's always been that way. Frank is on the
1: line from Buffalo. Hello, Frank.
2: Welcome to the Conspiracy Show.
0: Yeah. Uh, hello, Richard. Thanks for taking my call, uh, Mr. Heller. I was just wondering, what is your opinion? What is the end game here? What are these scientists and others true believers? Is there are such a thing? Is is this all about money? Is the scientific community just trying to um, continue their funding? Is it about a redistribution of wealth away from developed countries? Or what do you think the end game is here?
2: Well, I think for the vast majority of academics, it's just about keeping their funding. And it's a great question. Thanks, Frank, by the way. So a good, very good friend of mine was Dr. Bill Gray from Colorado State University, who passed away four years ago. He was the world's leading tropical meteorologist. He's the guy who invented modern hurricane forecasting. And he got funding from NOAA every year from the mid-1960s until the year 1993, when Al Gore became vice president. Al Gore called him up and said, I'm having this global warming meeting in Washington. Will you please come attend? And Bill said, sure, I'll, I'll come attend your meeting like you need to know that I'm not a big believer in your theories. Well, guess what happened is funding got cut off. You never got another penny out of the government. And everyone who's in academia involved with climate stuff knows what the game is. If you go along with the global warming game, say the right words, you're going to get funding. If you don't, you're going to get cut off. You're going to get ostracized. You'll probably lose your job. Bill didn't lose his job because he was a very famous, well vetted tenured professor. But for lots of people, they do. So they just go along and play the game. So for the vast majority of them, it's just a matter of if, if they want to get the research grants, they've got to say the right things to keep their funding coming. But there's a few people who are heavily into the politics of it, too, like Michael Mann from Penn State University and Catherine Hayhoe from Texas Tech University. And these people are actually involved with politicians. They frequented the White House, under Obama. So they have other objectives besides just keeping their families fed with grand money. And like we were discussing with um, Richard at the beginning of this show, To me, everything that's gone on this year with shutting down the airlines, keeping people at home, keeping people from driving their cars, this is all just an extension of the Green New Deal, which has been the government's goal or somebody's goal all along. So the people controlling the
0: funding are the ones that, I mean, really have the power then.
2: Yeah, exactly. The funding is controlled by politicians, right? They're the ones who decide how much money goes out to different agencies. They're the ones who decide who heads up the agencies. So the politicians control the funding. The funding controls the science. And President Eisenhower, in his farewell speech in 1961, his very famous military-industrial complex speech, warned about this very specifically. The danger of that research was being taken over by government funding and the equal and opposite danger that a technical elite was going to take over public policy, which is exactly what's happened. I want to move on to, um, to flooding.
1: This is the other thing we hear all the time. We're having the worst flooding in history. We had some bad flooding in uh, Quebec last year, up here in Canada. And again, we were told this is the worst flooding we've ever had.
2: Well, Mr. Weather Geek, what say you? Yeah, these claims on worse flooding are just total nonsense. If you look in Wikipedia for the 100 most deadly floods, none of them have happened recently. The worst decade for flooding was the 1930s. There was a flood in 1931, around this time of year in 1931 in China, which killed like 3.5 million people and left 50 million people homeless. And there were terrible floods all during the 1930s. In 1937, there was this horrible flood along the Ohio River in the United States, which left like a million people homeless. The worst flood in U.S. history occurred in 1927 along the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River flooded for six months, and it drove millions of descendants of slaves who had homesteaded along the Mississippi River drove them off their land and they moved up to northern cities, which completely changed the demographics of the United States was that nineteen twenty-seven flood. There were terrible floods in nineteen thirteen, and it was called the greatest cataclysm in history along the Ohio River, all along the up in the east and in the Midwest in nineteen thirty-six I've got an article from an Australian newspaper talking about this massive flooding in 1936, in March of 1936. And the article said all of Eastern America is flooded. And my grandfather was in a business meeting in Pittsburgh on March 21st, 1936. He had to be evacuated from downtown Pittsburgh by boat. And there's tremendous history of floods. I, I go through old newspaper articles and look this up and all these claims that we're having record floods now are just based on people who are either willfully or non willfully ignorant of history. It's simply not true what they're saying. And what about hurricanes? We're told
1: now they're far more intense, we're getting more hurricanes during hurricane season, they're deadlier. What say you to that?
2: Yeah, well, this is just really, really bad statistics that people are using. Now they can detect hurricanes that are out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. But 70 or 80 years ago, maybe more than 70 years ago, it was very unlikely that people would have even known about them. Unless a ship happened to pass through where the hurricane was, they wouldn't have known about it. And Chris for who's the, like, the chief scientist of the National Hurricane Center, is written a paper about this, showing how... We don't have any idea how many tropical storms and hurricanes were occurring out in the middle of the ocean from historical records. All we know is what made landfall. And if you look at hurricanes which have made landfall in the United States, they're way down. The worst year for hurricanes in the United States was 1886 when we were hit by seven hurricanes. And the presidency of Grover Cleveland, the United States, was hit by 27 hurricanes, which is by far the most we ever had. And they've declined. We've had fewer and fewer. Hurricanes have declined considerably since the 1880s. And for major hurricanes, the worst periods were around the 1940s and 1950s. So these claims that hurricanes are getting worse are based largely on the fact that we have better detection capability now. We know where every single hurricane, and we have airplanes flying through them, and they find the absolute highest wind speed in a hurricane now you know, which is 200 feet above the ocean surface. Whereas in the past, the only wind speeds we knew were if a hurricane happened to hit an anemometer on the ground, so it was just hit and miss, whereas now they're going to find out what absolutely the highest hurricane wind speed are. So it's sampling bias. It's not climate. This is really, really bad junk science that we're being fed about hurricanes becoming more common and then becoming more intense. What would be the mechanism according to the climate alarmist
1: logic whereby an increase in carbon dioxide could cause more intense weather?
2: Well, the original theory behind that was that it makes the oceans warmer and having the oceans warmer puts more moisture in the atmosphere which causes heavier snow and, it also, and also warmer oceans cause larger hurricanes. It was sort of the basis, but it's just sort of taken off. There's not really any logic behind it. At this point just religion based on the idea that humans are bad, humans are burning oil, and we're putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and we're being punished for it. I mean, that's pretty much the level we're at. It's not really science that we're dealing with.
1: In terms of the ocean temperatures, are they warming, and can that be attributed, if they are, to underwater volcanic activity?
2: I don't really... I have a good sense for what ocean temperatures, you know, the long-term trend of ocean temperatures are. Ocean temperatures are largely determined by thermohaline patterns, you know, that salinity of – you get these circulation – water is heavier than freshwater is, so you get these thermohaline patterns. This is pretty complicated, and this was Bill Gray's specialty, was, but they drive the ocean currents, and they bring cold water up from the bottom sometimes. And then other times, this water stagnates at the top and warms. And this is what causes like El Nino's and La Niña's, is stuff related to thermohaline patterns. So the whole idea of just people don't really know what long-term trends of the oceans are would be my answer to that.
1: All right. We'll uh, take another time out, come back. Tony Heller is with us from realclimatescience.com, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away.
0: Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And you can
1: say hello to me at Richard Serrett on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter at Richard Serrett. S-Y, because I love you, T at Richard Serrett. Tony Heller with us for the full two hours. And uh, you can view Tony's video postings up at youtube.app. N-E-W, new, tube, T-U-B-E, dot, app, A-P-P. And the website for Tony is realclimatescience.com. I want to go to the uh, the live chat and get a question here. This is from George. He asks, you sort of addressed this earlier, but this is kind of a slightly different angle. How much of the climate alarmist's agenda is driven by the desire for wealth redistribution? What do you think, Tony?
2: Well, I think there's certainly, you know, the tendency for academics is to be very left-wing. I I suspect that a lot of the lower level people involved in this that would be part of their agenda. I don't believe that that's the larger agenda that's going on here, though. Like I said, I, I think this is all tied into the same thing with the COVID agenda. And I think there's much more sinister things going on than than that coming from the people at the top who are funding all this, but certainly there are i'm sure there's lots of people with sort of socialist communist views in the academic community who see that as one of the advantages of you know these carbon taxes and and other things which they want to implement
1: it does seem odd to say the least that they these climate alarmists and the united nations the ipcc are targeting the west canada for example which our yearly contribution to carbon dioxide emissions is minuscule and yet they want to shut down our oil and gas industry which would have a just a a crushing effect on the economy is having a crushing effect on the economy and yet india or china so for example china which i think they're just their new coal-burning plants coming on stream this year will produce more carbon dioxide than what is currently being produced in the United States and Canada combined.
2: Why is China getting a free pass? Well, you know, Donald Trump tweeted in 2012 that global warming is a hoax created by the Chinese in order to hurt American industry. And I don't know if that's completely true, but I think there's a lot of truth to that you know that it's obvious you know when obama made his agreement with china um, around 2012 the agreement was that china would continue to increase their emissions until the year 2030 they're already the world's largest carbon dioxide emitter in the world and it's growing very rapidly you know the united states co2 emissions have been declining for like 15 years and china's are skyrocketing but obama made a deal where The Chinese could keep growing their emissions, and the United States had to cut ours. So it looks like a pretty definitive sabotage of American industry. And it also shows that Obama wasn't serious about reducing emissions, because the only way you're going to reduce carbon dioxide emissions is if you get China and India and other Asian countries to do it, and that hasn't been part of the deal. Nobody's asked China and Asia to reduce their emissions. I want to go to uh, the YouTube live
1: chat again. YY asks, what is your view, Tony, on an impending mini ice age? Will one happen?
2: That's not really a topic which I've looked at, and I don't like to make predictions. I mean, certainly, historically, there's been a um, tendency during periods of very low solar activity, like we're having now, for a long term, to be a cooling trend, like during the Maunder Minimum, after quite a few years of low solar activity, Earth's temperature got quite cold. I mean, it's possible that that could happen, but that's not really an area which I've looked into too much, and and I really hesitate to make any sort of predictions. So, I know a lot of people are interested in that, but that isn't an area which I've focused on.
1: All right. I want to address sea levels, and we're told that they're rising and Coastal areas will have to be evacuated and so forth. The sea levels are rising in places like Miami and New York, et cetera, et cetera. What does your data tell you about the level
2: of the oceans? Well, so sea level has risen 400 feet over the last 20,000 years. And almost all of that rise occurred prior to about 8,000 years ago. Sea level rose very quickly from about 16,000 years ago to about 8,000 years ago. And since then, it's been much slower. The current rate of sea level rise really hasn't changed significantly over the last 150 years. There's only a few long-term tide gauges around the world. One of them's in New York City. There hasn't been any significant change in the rate of sea level rise in New York City since Abraham Lincoln was president. There's some in Europe, like in Stockholm. In Stockholm, sea level is falling, and it's falling at about the same rate as it was 130 years ago. Um, another one is um, at Sydney, Australia, I'm at Fort Denison. There's been almost no sea level rise at all there. I've been to there, taken pictures of it. And if you look at pictures from Fort Denison from you know, the 1880s of the level, the high water mark from the 1880s, it isn't significantly different than it is now. I've got a good one from 1871 from La Jolla, California, a good picture from 1871, a high-tide picture, and I've taken one from a high-tide picture, a contemporary one, and, and laid them on top of each other. And there's almost exactly the same so a lot of the sea level rise stuff which people have observed in some places is actually due to the land sinking Like, and that's particularly bad along the east coast of the United States during the last ice age Canada was covered with this very thick two miles of ice and this pushed the land down in Canada depressed the land and it's sort of like if you push your thumb into a water balloon it goes down where your thumb is and then it blows up around it and so what happened was during the last ice age you know canada's land in canada was depressed and much of the land in the eastern united states got raised up it was pushed up by this effect of the land pushing down and pushing on the mantle which caused it to bubble up around the edges but since the ice melted 20,000 years ago, the land along the east coast of the United States has been sinking. This is called isostasy. And so it looks like sea levels rising, but what's actually happening is the land is sinking. If you go to the west coast, we don't see that. We don't see sea level rise on the west coast of the United States. It's just on the east coast. So it's largely just an illusion. And then in the Gulf Coast, um, we have a sort of different problem. After these big floods, like I mentioned on the Mississippi in 1927, they put dams and levees up along to keep the land from flooding. And so now what happens is we used to get floods coming down the Mississippi River, which would spread out over a wide area, drop silt, and it essentially raise the level of the land up. But that's not happening anymore because we don't allow these floods to occur. So the land appears to be sinking um, and it, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's kind of the basics of it. So you always have to be really careful when you're looking at sea-level rise stuff. Are you actually looking at the oceans rising, or are you looking at the land sinking? But in the too few tide gauges, which have been stable for a long time, there's very little, if any, indication that sea-level rise rates have increased significantly from what they were 150 years ago. You mentioned a rapid rise in sea
1: level. About was it four hundred feet between sixteen thousand and eight thousand years ago? What caused
2: that? A melting of glaciers from the last ice age. You know, the like Canada was covered with ice, and a lot of up um, a lot of the eastern United States was covered with ice at that time too, and much of Europe, northern Europe. So, when that ice melted, that that all that water which was locked up in ice on the land, then flowed down to the ocean and raised the level of the seas. Florida, during the last ice age, Florida was twice as, at least twice as large as it is now. So Florida has been shrinking for 20,000 years as a result of rising sea levels. Um, so eventually, yeah, Miami will be underwater eventually unless we go back into a new ice age. Uh, But this is something which has been going on for a very long time. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.
0: The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant.
1: All right. uh, Before we go back to the phones, Tony, you wanted to add a couple of points. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, so I wanted to mention that I have a new um, partner on on my real climate science um, website, and that's Kyrie. She's a Japanese climate skeptic, and she has been feeding me some important information based on stuff which we've been talking about, um, which I just wanted to throw out. So she says that she keeps, she's great with statistics. She told me that there's only 277 stations around the world which have temperature data since the year 1880. And that's not a lot. And probably most of them are in the United States. um, Interesting. or, Or perhaps. And then she sent me another statistic, which is that. The, the, number of, the number of typhoons in the Pacific, according to the Japanese Meteorological Institute Agency, has been trending down since the year 1951. Trending down. Ah, yeah. All right.
1: All right. Uh, let's see. Let's go to the phones. We have Ray checking in from Barrie, Ontario. Ray, welcome.
0: Great, great show there, uh, and great guests you have there too. I have some pretty good knowledge about the Arctic and stuff like that. You know, the Arctic is full of volcanic vents. Up there, there's also vo- volcanoes under the ice. Uh, those vents, they open and close as the tectonic plates move. There's nothing you can do about it. Some of these, some of these vents actually, just like plumbing, they get clogged up. It, now, if you look a little bit further in the Arctic you have a place called the Gacko Ridge from Norway all the way to Siberia and go on through the Arctic there. The Gacko Ridge is almost as deep as the Marianas Trench. Not that by that much, but is very close. Lots of volcanic vents under there. So that's heating the water. It's heating underneath. The vents open and close. Uh what was it? Two thousand and six they're saying they're saying, Oh, the ice is melting, this and that. And uh, they are making the claim in February. Well, first of all, 2006 in February up there it was minus 60, and don't forget there's no sunlight up there. Well, the volcanic vents were just blasting away, melting away. Now, if you look at the look at the planet, uh, a lot of the vents and volcanoes are around the equator. Now you have, um, you have the ring of fire, forget about that, but a lot of them are around the equator. Now, centrifugal force, those things get clogged up also as the tectonic plates move, they close and open and stuff like that. So they have, the pressure has to go somewhere. Nobody's ever looked at the thermals, and the environmentalists don't look at the thermals or anything like that, they're focused on one thing. Now, we could have a hell of a problem, and environmentalists are going to be saying, look over here. Meanwhile, we should have been looking somewhere else. I'm uh, going to make one more comment, uh, Richard, if you'd be interested in some t- something like that. Sure, this. sure. If you're, uh, if you're looking for where the money is, uh, look to the Tides Foundation and look at Saudi Arabia and China One of the biggest funders, and that's about all I got to say, and I'll listen to your answers off the air. But anyways, great guests. Uh, Love your show, and i love the guests you got today.
1: Ray, thank you for that. Well, uh, Tony, uh, you have studied uh, volcanic activity, I believe, at uh, Los Alamos, haven't you?
2: Yeah, um, we we did some really fun uh, physical modeling of volcanoes out at a high-explosive testing site. And that would actually be quite a long story in itself. We had a lot of fun with that.
1: <laughs> Did you want to to comment on 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 Ray talking about volcanic activity and vents, volcanic vents in the Arctic?
2: Yeah, I, um, in, unless there had been a change, like since the the 1970s, and during the 1970s, the ice built up, you know, very thick in the Arctic. And unless there had been a change in volcanic activity, it would be really difficult for me to try to make a claim that it correlates somehow with the, you know, volcanoes with the coming and going of the ice. I mean, why would volcanic activity be different now in the Arctic than it was 40 years ago? There, there, maybe it is, but it's not something that I'm familiar with and would feel comfortable commenting about.
0: All right.
1: Back to the live chat and uh, Solar Warden writes or asks rather, what's with the complete lack of reliability in the long term climate models and how come they're essentially a forecast Ouija board? So let's talk about the IPCC uh, modeling. Uh, I, I mean, I think they've even admitted buried in their reports that these long these these forecasts are not reliable.
2: They're they're a joke. They're just a toy. And I, I've worked on these climate models for the NAS- National Center for Atmospheric Research. Um, you know, basically, what they are is they they just take their weather models and then they just run them for a really long period of time. Well, we know that weather models are no good for more than like three or maybe five days, right? And then all of a sudden, they think that they can run it out for a hundred years and have it be any value. They're, they're just meaningless. You know, just academics, they get money for their computers and and for their computer models and they play with them and they imagine that they're doing something useful when in fact it's just garbage in, garbage out. And it brings in lots of money to people like the National Center for Atmospheric Research and NASA and, and academia. So they're they're perfectly happy to play the game. But from a scientific point of view, they're just toys and they have no business using them in um you know for policy decisions because they're garbage in, garbage out. They've they've never shown any accuracy. Of course they lie about it. I was just someone was just right this evening about how James Hansen and Michael Mann were were on some show or something today and they were saying how um Hansen's forecasts from thirty years ago were spot on when in fact they were a complete disaster. He had no idea what he was talking about so the, you know they they make these fake models and make their fake forecasts and then they lie about them later and that's how the game's played also I would think that when there's a there's an
1: there there are errors uh in these models and they might be over the first you know, uh, six months, maybe those errors are not significant. But as you project outwards, those errors become amplified. And so by the time you get 10 years out, I I would imagine that those errors would be would be huge. The data would be pretty much useless.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly right. You get compounding errors and. It starts out bad, it gets worse, and it just gets worse. And they're, they're of no value. I mean, they're literally—they literally have zero value in science, and they should never—they should never have been shown to policymakers. And these people should never claim that they're any value because they're not. They're a joke.
1: All right, one final time out, Tony. Uh, hang in there. We'll uh, be back in a moment, and we'll finish up. Tony Heller. From realclimatescience.com. And again, his uh, videos are posted now at newtube.app. Back with more. Stay with us.
0: Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Just
1: reading a headline here, an article from the National Geographic Online from 2017, November 14th, 2017, get this, climate change drove ISIS recruiting in Iraq. Uh, I mean, you hear these seemingly outlandish claims all the time that everything now is being caused by climate change, but imagine terrorism now and ISIS recruiting is being caused by climate change. Now, here's the thing uh, I don't understand, and, and they're now talking about climate refugees and how... We have to take in millions of refugees because they're fleeing climate change. But if I'm not mistaken, Tony, these are projections of what's going to happen in the future, but they're telling us it's happening now. So I'm kind of confused. Well,
2: you know, if you look at historical data, like historical data of famines, um, droughts, say in China, for example, when I was a kid, you know, in the 1960s, there were tens of millions of people dying in China from starvation. You know, they were having terrible. They, they had essentially no rain in China in 1961 in their agricultural areas. People were starving to so Similar situations in India, and and if you go back and you look at the history of droughts and famines in China, they've had a terrible drought and famine just about every year for the past 2,000 years. <laughs> And so this stuff's been going on forever. It's not climate change. You know, the, the the big episode of climate refugees in the United States occurred, which we talked about earlier, was during the 1930s, the Dust Bowl, when millions of people fled the Midwest and moved out to California. And I don't think the California Governor Newsom even knows about this when he talks about it. So we have had periods of, you know, changes in climate and changes in weather, which have led to huge periods of refugees. But the, the fact is that we've actually been in a period of very mild weather for a long time. You know, if you look if you compare the sort of weather patterns we've had recently, in the United States and Canada we have much fewer droughts than we used to. You know, people aren't aware of this but the northeastern United States and the part, you know, in eastern Canada used to be in drought most of the time prior to 1970. Um, there there were terrible droughts going on then. I remember going to my grandparents' house in, in, in Long Island, New York in the 19, 1965, New York City almost ran out of water several times during the 1960s. Um, they were fighting with Philadelphia for the last little bit of water in the Delaware River. They had signs up in restaurants, water by request only. You couldn't water your lawn. There were terrible forest fires in the northeastern U.S. and eastern Canada um, you know, the, 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 word, the largest, actually the largest forest fire in Canada's history occurred in 1835, the Miramichi Fire in New Brunswick. It was a massive fire. So we used to, it used to be much drier, and they used to have fires. And over the last 50 years, you know, in the eastern, northeastern U.S. and eastern Canada, the weather's been much more mild than it used to be. So it's 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 all based on superstition. It's not history. In in terms of a famine,
1: one would expect if the world is in in fact greening, and you said I think NASA has acknowledged this, and with with the the concentration of carbon dioxide being the cause, would that also indicate that there would be an, a a higher yield
2: in terms of crops? Oh yeah, crop yields of. Have- been going up, increasing rapidly for the last 50 years. Starvation is way down. Malnutrition is way down. Deaths from natural disasters have plummeted. There were only 12,000 people dead from natural disasters in the entire world last year. Compared to 100 years ago when we had millions of people dying from natural disasters, if if you go to the Oxford University Our World on Data website, you can look at this. Life has gotten much better for humans over the last 50 years. You know, we, we eat better, we live better, you know, we live longer lives, you're much less likely to die from bad weather than people used to be. You know, it, it, like I said, it's all superstition. What these people claim is not based on history, it's not based on data, and it's certainly not based on science. And and uh, I guess to, 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 to take a page from Alex,
1: Alex Epstein, the, the moral case for fossil fuels, how much of that, uh, the, the betterment of humankind, fewer deaths from natural disasters is could be attributed to
2: the use of fossil fuels? Well, a huge amount of it. People were able to live very comfortable, climate-controlled lives now because of fossil fuels. We, we can get light anytime we need it. We can get heat anytime we need it. We can get air conditioning anytime we need it. Most people don't experience extreme weather be, because they live in a climate-controlled environment, but they watch CNN and CNN tells shows them pictures of floods and hurricanes and fires, and tells them it's all going to come burn you down, and it's all because of your bad behavior, and you need to be punished in order to stop this, right? And and you know, it, it, but it's not science; it's it's a religion. It's it's the same primitive beliefs. You know, in the 16th century, something like 15,000 people were burned at the stakes. Um, because it was they were it was believed that they were witches who were cooking the weather. They blame bad weather on witches, you know. And now they blame bad weather on Donald Trump and Republicans. <laughs> but you know, it's the it's
1: the same mentality. You know what, what what makes me genuinely angry is that that this is being taught in in public schools, and uh, not just in public schools in in private schools. I'm sure, uh, even religious schools and. Children are being traumatized. They are being taught that humankind is a cancer and the the earth is going to end and there's nothing much now we can do about it. It's too late to reverse these trends. Uh, and the children are, are hurting themselves. They are so despondent. This is absolute child abuse.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with you. And it's not based on science. It's It's a religious belief. And it's it's horrible what they're doing.
1: Uh, back to the YouTube chat. Layman Talks asks, uh, if Tony, if you have any insight about ghost temperature stations, ghost temperature stations.
2: Yeah, well, I'm not exactly sure what that is. But I can tell you that in the United States, um, about half of the data currently being used by NOAA to calculate U.S. temperatures... Is imaginary. It's it's from maybe perhaps what you call ghost stations, where they don't actually have any data anymore. And what they do is they just make a, they have a computer model to calculate what they think the temperature would have been if they actually had temperature data. But if you look at the monthly data from NOAA, and I'm about to make a video about this, I'll probably make it tomorrow or the next day, um, showing that about 50% of the current NOAA U.S. temperature data is Stations which didn't report that much—they so just make up numbers for it. So I get—I would think that's probably what ghost What he meant by ghost stations, yeah. All right. Do you think? Do you think? I say we're winning
1: because yeah, I, you and I are simpatico on this, and and people like Patrick Moore and and uh, uh, Timothy Ball, who's a good friend of the program. Are we winning this war? What does the latest polling say regarding? Uh, public opinion on on anthropogenic global warming?
2: Well, you know, for, for people who are aware, people who, you know, go out on the internet and do their own research, and, you know, I think we're probably doing pretty well with that group, but the problem is that most people do, don't do that. Most people, I think, are just going to believe whatever they hear from politicians or um, from CNN or, or wherever, and so... I would guess that we're probably not winning among the overall population, but among educated people who are willing to go out and research stuff for themselves and and get the accurate information, we're probably doing extremely well because we're presenting information which is easy, which is accurate, it's logical, and it's easy to verify. So anybody who makes the effort to do it will come to the same conclusion, which I'm you know, trying to present and Patrick Moore and Tim Ball are presenting.
1: I, I thought that, you know, perhaps the scandal at East Anglia climate uh,
2: gate would have been the nail in the coffin,
1: the final nail in the coffin. But perhaps the, the final nail in the coffin won't come until, uh, let's say, another decade from now when none of these dire things that they're predicting come to pass. And then finally, we can move on to the next uh, fraudulent crisis, I guess. <laughs>
2: Well, you know, they've been making these predictions for forever. You know, 1989, the um, top guy in the U.N. environment program said we only had until the year 2000 to stop global warming. And then entire nations were going to be wiped from the face of the earth and everything was going to fall apart. So they've been doing this for decades and they just keep you know, doubling down on it. And, and the press, of course, nobody remembers what they said in the past. So <laughs> I'm not as hopeful as you are about that.
1: Tony, thank you so much for hanging out the last two hours. Again, it's realclimatescience.com and the new video platform, newtube.app. A great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Tony Heller. My thanks to Ryan and Carlos back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak in the light what I say in a whisper proclaim from the housetops Move over Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.